Welcome to National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast, which takes a look at the NDIS in action for service providers. My name's David Moody, and I'm the State Manager of NDS in Victoria. And today we're exploring business efficiency under the NDIS. While the NDIS price guide may determine an operating environment of capped chargeable services, no matter what industry your business is in, leaders will need to deliver quality services that maximise value and minimise losses. The key to this will be running an efficient business. This is as true for our sector as any other in the context of our transition to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Today we're joined by studio guests Tom Keating, National Manager of NDS Consulting, and Clover Loria, Manager of the NDS Sector Support Consultancy Team in Victoria. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Ross Coverdale, CEO at Araluan, a valued NDS member, to talk about business efficiencies that Araluan has introduced in their path to transitioning to the NDIS. So, Tom and Clover, welcome to both of you today. Let's be efficient ourselves and get straight into the topic of business efficiency. Tom, I wonder if we could start with you. From a commercial perspective, what are some of the common pitfalls that impact business efficiency for providers? Look, David, from my experience, well, I think there are are a number of very broad pitfalls that organisations can fall into. The first that comes to mind for me is actually losing sight of who you are. Disability organisations very often come from a strong mission-driven background. They have a strong sense of values. They've moved in now into a much more commercial environment that asks of them to behave in different ways. And the trap is that you can lose sight of where you come from and that underlying uh, values base. In my experience, the organisations that have really um, prospered in this sort of environment are ones that are very clear about who they are, where they're coming from, and their commitment to their clients, their consumers, and have reconciled that with the demands of working within a commercial environment. The second pitfall I'd identify is the trap of confusing tools and products. That is, there are a lot of tools out there that you can use to make your business more effective, but they are not an end in themselves. So people think, I've got to get a marketing plan. So the marketing plan becomes, the technology around marketing becomes what's important, but in fact, what needs to drive it is the message. You've got to be clear about what it is you're marketing rather than just focus on the technology. And very often people don't, I've got to get a website, I've actually got to get the social media up, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, without being clear about what it is that they they need to do. And indeed, I'm aware, and I'm sure, Clover, you'd, you'd be aware of these examples as well, of providers who have been awfully keen to develop an overarching marketing strategy, but they've forgotten about, in fact, they're going out the door backwards in terms of their finances and that in terms of their prioritisation, whilst they focused upon the bright, shiny baubles of a marketing strategy. Look, I think that's right. There's not much point in marketing something which isn't going to be around for longer than five minutes. I think that's right, David. And in the the finance area or the technical management area, I think there are some, some really significant pitfalls. The most significant is actually not understanding what your cost drivers are. Mm. And um, Clover, I might bring you in here in, into the conversation. What are some of the common pitfalls that you're seeing in terms of their impact on business efficiency when you and your team, the sector support consultancy team, are out in the road and in meetings with disability service providers? Most definitely. Uh, thanks, David. I would concur with everything that Tom said. But just to add to that, which complements all of that, specifically around the entire workforce of an organisation, including boards, 
It's around a communication strategy and an awareness for the whole of organisation to know the intricacies of what it will take to move this to move your organisation forward under the scheme. And a lot of what sector support consultancy do is information sharing, but empowerment of board through to frontline to alleviate any of those anxieties that are currently out there due to this massive change. And a huge element of that, incorporating everything that Tom's just mentioned, is um, a change management and communication strategy for whole of organisation, keeping people empowered, aware, and um, empowering that workforce to be leaders within that organisation as well. That's right. And it'll become a more competitive uh, workforce environment over time as the service structure expands, but the workforce doesn't necessarily keep pace pace with that. So getting the right skills, getting the right mix of people, the short-term focus on workforce can have you looking at reducing downtime, limiting workforce wastage time, etc., becoming more efficient. The real benefits of uh, our workforce development, workforce reform, are getting the best out of your people, making sure they've got the skills, empowering them to exercise more authority and control in their in their workplace. And in my experience, that a more engaged workforce of that sort stays with you longer. They produce more and better outcomes for consumers. So, in terms of business efficiency and focusing upon being as efficient as possible in the context of capped NDIS prices. And certainly in terms of what you were just saying, Clover, examples of organisations which are doing it really well in terms of communicating across and within their organisation hmm. as to what their value proposition is. Totally. And I think that any organisation can invest financially in all these great processes and tools and systems. But if you don't have organisational awareness or a culture which will embrace those systems and understand why those systems and processes are being put in place, then you're actually setting yourself up to fail. So, And it starts with the board understanding and also giving scope to the leaders of the organisation to be able to implement this and spend the time informing and empowering their frontline. Because without your frontline, they are your biggest asset and your largest expense. Without the frontline, you don't have a business as much as you don't have a consumer as well. So thanks for that, Clay. That really starts to set the scene for us. Tom, I might ask you, on that basis, what are some of the practical tips you'd offer for how providers can increase their business efficiency under the NDIS? Look, I think there are a range of things, and I'll I'll start at the sort of very broad level, but they are practical. I think the first one, most important in in my experience, is to be clear about who you are and what your goals are. That enables you to be very clear about what you need to retain and those things that are less important for you to do. So it enables you to, to frame what you're doing. Secondly, both Clover and I have talked about the importance of frontline staff, but optimising your staff resources Mm. is absolutely important. So you need to actually get the best out of that resource. Uh, Thirdly, I'd say uh, understand the cost drivers of your business. What's driving cost? uh, What's driving revenue? Mm. And, And that means that you've got to do your homework. I recently did some work with a, a large disability organisation and had a look at their information systems. They thought they knew what their costs were, but 
there was missing values, there was miscoding, there was failure to understand various aspects of, of their financial reporting system. You've actually got to put in the hard yards to actually understand your, your business very well. I wonder if I might jump in there, Tom, and ask, could you give us, it's, it's a de-identified conversation, but so I don't want you to reveal the name of the provider, obviously, but so without giving away too much, what was an example of what they were missing in terms of understanding their cost drivers? Well, there was a range of problems there. Um, <laughs> some of it was that the financial system hadn't been constructed to do the current job, so that it didn't actually disaggregate costs in the way that it needs to. Where the NDIS is pushing us and where we have to go is to be able to acquit our expenditure against individual consumer plans. The technology is very slow at actually getting to the point of being able to deliver that well. And so people working with legacy systems that try to report on activity and then they try and relate it back to uh, individual clients. If your finance system is not geared to do the current job, then you've got a problem straight away. If, in fact, you then have problems with the way that finance system has been implemented, so how, how when values are inputted to that system. So if people have to go away from their workplace and enter into a reporting system, they do it inaccurately or they do it later on. Unless you're lifting your costs out of your actual uh, work performance, you don't get an accurate reflection. So really the organisation said, look, we've, we've got this massive blowout in one part of our expenditure. When I looked at it, they had that out out by about a half a million dollars in terms of actual reporting what the actual cost was because the data that was going in was inaccurate and then it was being misinterpreted and, and, and not, not understood. Okay, well, half a million dollars is a fair whack in anyone's language. Goodness. Okay, Clover. Yeah, I, I, what I've seen a lot of providers in their financial systems, they're, they're looking at the bulk lots of funding that has come in previously and more so they'll look at how that's spent in staffing or infrastructure and material and tools rather than specifically what they've been servicing or producing for the particular consumer, the participant. Mm -hmm. And now the environment has changed where that money has to be acquitted against the participant. So it's come as a bit of a culture shock or been quite confronting when um, NDIA are now asking providers to quote or outline from 24-7 exactly what a participant receives in housing. And a lot of the providers will go, I don't know, we've received this block money, we've put it into housing, we've staffed it, we've got fleet vehicles, we've bought them, you know, a fridge and a washing machine, but we don't know what they actually need or have. That's the frontline staff's role. Now they actually have to account for every hour and what's being provided. So, so some have embraced that and actually gone, finally, we, we know what our organisation is actually delivering minute by minute. And some have been quite confronted by that because they've just worked on a, we've got this money, let's just put it here. And this, not let's just in a considered way, but this is how we've done it in the past. And it's a huge shift for everybody. As we've always said in the sector, certainly for the last few years, this is on any assessment, a massive and disruptive change. Totally. And I suppose just to perhaps summarise a bit of what we've just been saying, merely because you as a provider have got a beautiful bespoke system that was fantastic up to but not past the start of the NDIS mm. doesn't mean it will necessarily translate well into an NDIS world with individualised funding and having to acquit against that individualised funding. Tom, what else would you suggest by way of practical tips 
Oh, look, there's a couple of other things I'd throw in, David. As I said, you need to do your homework. That is, you need to get your data right mm. if that's going to actually lead um, your decision-making. You also need to be prepared to change. Totally. And that's not just in your office systems or your reporting systems, also in your technology of care. So you actually need to be prepared to reshape your service models to respond to a contemporary environment. And that can be pretty challenging for organisations since that's the big task and then the business systems are there to support that, that change. And so, again, it's part of what I was describing is knowing who you are and where you, what your organisation is about, how you want to position yourself for the future. And that's not just how you want to position yourself in the next year or so, it's where you want to be long term. So I've worked with organisations that have said, look, in the context of the NDIS, we don't think we should be in group accommodation into the future mm-hmm. because it's it's built around uh, the needs of large groups of people or groups of, of consumers rather than individual needs. But a decision to actually get out of bricks and mortar and sell up our legacy assets is challenging for, for an organisation. And then you need to change your whole business practices uh, to actually support that. As against that, another organisation I worked with who said, gee, we've got cost blowouts. The way we can handle this is bus everyone to, the, to a single location and provide a particular, uh, the same program for them. Because then we reduce the cost variability and uh, uh, we can contain our costs. I had to say to them, have you read the Act? Mm. You know, mm. <laughs> um, we've been trying to go somewhere else for the last 30 years. We've been mm. trying to go to a point where the needs of the individual consumer is what drives care. So getting your understanding of your vision right, getting your service models right, and then getting the business systems that support that activity is what I think it's about. Clover, can I ask you, because this sounds to me like something, this is the, the meat and potatoes of what boards should be doing. Yes. In terms of setting the vision, setting the strategic priorities and the like, supporting senior management, senior leadership to actually implement Mm. the strategic vision and the purpose of the organisation in the context of this disruptive change that is the NDIS. Now, I know that you and others in our sector support consultancy team in Victoria engage with boards on a regular basis. Are you seeing evidence of boards being willing to grasp the nettle and actually get into this space? Boards are an interesting bunch and I can say that because I'm a member of a board. I think there's there's all sorts of different boards. I don't want to put them in any kind of a stereotype, but I've worked with boards that are so on it, so informed, have done their research and when you present to them they've got tons of questions and really informed questions and so you can see that that this organisation will succeed because it's coming from the top. Because they've got that sort of interrogative approach to the issues that they're dealing with. Absolutely. I mean, the first entry point for any consultant from NDS is generally the CEO and you can tell from sometimes the CEO's approach or own anxieties when when a consultant says, well, let's meet with your board, let's have a chat to the board and see where they're at and when they're very hesitant or deflated... the CEO is the very CEO, yep. because they, they've got a, a feeling that their board is not going to implement change or is very resistant to any kind of change, NDIS or what have you, or maybe ready the board is ready to move on to other ventures and um, they need to look at a new board. 
that's most definitely fact that I have a lot of faith in CEOs of these organisations that are potentially going to struggle through this change because they don't have the leadership and support that they require from their board and um, and which is becoming more common. I've been approached by a lot of organisations who their board are saying to them, you need to show us what our profit margin will be within six months of implementing NDIS changes. You need to show us what our profit margins will be. And I think that's a large, um, large expectation to put on a CEO in this time of change with huge... Um, huge unknowns and even when you don't know whether your current participants will return and the all of the new startups and new providers out there that in an open market that they're putting a lot of pressure on the CEO to implement this change with all of this change the culture of their organization implement systems what have you and also guarantee a margin within 6 months of transition so we're going to hear later in the program from a CEO who has yeah. been implementing business efficiencies and doing it well but until such time as we bring Ross into the studio, is it expected that CEOs would have at their disposal the ability to enunciate what's going to happen six months out in terms of the finances when the boards uh, understandably ask that question? Um, or is that an unfair question that I've asked? No, no, not, a, not at all. I'm, I'm just thinking I mean, the, the response to it is yes and no. <laughs> uh, because, of, of course, you've got to be able to do financial projections. You've got to do business business planning. But... We're dealing with a classic turbulent environment mm -hmm. where you've got multiple change taking place and multiple dimensions at the same time in an interactive way. And we've talked a bit about the, the complexity and, the, and uh, how large the, the change process is. And that means that strategic planning is directional rather than blueprint planning. And so you're saying this is where we're going and these are the things that we need to do to actually get there. These are the systems we need to be, have in place to be able to, to get there as well. But that means that you need to, uh, while maintaining your direction, be prepared to move around a little bit and it won't be entirely predictable. So, yes, of course you've got to do business planning. Do you hang out, out to dry a, a CEO who doesn't deliver on a, uh, a business yeah. plan because of changed environment or, or whatever? No, of course not. You hold a CEO responsible for articulating where you're going, the steps that need to be implemented to get there, and to be agile and thoughtful and reflective and able to modify that plan in order to achieve the goals that the organisation sets itself. So the board needs to have that sort of view. They need to be holding a CEO accountable for achieving the end goals, not necessarily every step along the way. Because I don't think anyone in this room would uh, have seen a three-year strategic plan which has been delivered in, in lockstep with what was expected by the board at the start. I mean, there are always opportunities and indeed imperatives to change course within the context of a three-year plan, particularly in the current environment. Having had many conversations with providers in Victoria, and I'll just deal with the Victorian experience for a second, given my role, um, I do know that there are many providers out there who have familiarised themselves with the, um, and indeed implemented client records management systems, one systems which actively support them to understand what their current consumers want and what their future consumers 
consumers may in fact need in terms of the services that, that organisation provides. And many of them are able to provide their boards with a level of granularity they've never had to provide before mm-hmm. about what the consumer wants. But certainly I would have thought that's one business efficiency, albeit one that's done at the cost of the provider, which we need to be thinking about when it comes to um, being as efficient as possible. Just as you were speaking, David, it, I had a bit of a flashback. I came into the community disability sector from a commercial background where everything was systems, inventory, data, mm-hmm. um, accountability for what was what stock was on the floor, what stock was going in, what was going out, what our customers were saying. And then I moved into the disability field in um, direct support and we had no system and we had nothing to, um, and this is 20 years ago. When it was block funding. and Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And um, large organisation, but we weren't recording anything. And I was quite astonished and said, but we, we are providing a service, a product, and why aren't we accounting all of that at the same time? But so in um, terms yeah, of- it's just interesting how, and now we are moving into that environment where we have to do that, definitely. So just to follow on from that, Clover, in terms of other practical tips you'd offer um, for achieving business efficiencies based upon your trips around Victoria and the trips that your, your team takes to visit with providers yep. around Victoria, what else would we be talking about in terms of business efficiencies? Well, most definitely, if you are going to invest in any sort of systems and um, keeping that in mind with the client management systems, that they need to be um, flexible, robust, adaptable. There's such great systems out there now. And I think a lot of providers invested very early rather than doing their homework. And now they're stuck with a multi-million dollar system that isn't able to evolve and adapt as the scheme continually changes, which we have all seen firsthand. And then also, with all due respect to the front line um, and from my experiences of being in the field, they're not a tech-savvy workforce. And so to create those efficiencies, you need to have a really robust system that can work with your organisation and change as it needs at minimal cost to the organisation, have great tech support around that, but train the frontline staff again to be able to use that in the most efficient way that gets the data that you require in a meaningful way that can inform NDIS of your progress, the participant of your progress, and then also your board and your management of the progress and what you should stop doing, continue doing and expand on as well. And I don't know if that system fully exists yet, but I think there's a lot of great vendors out there that are looking at systems like that. But nevertheless, you've painted a picture of some of the elements that you would expect such a system to have in order to achieve those business efficiencies. And it is true that, and in fairness, our support workers in our sector who are the lifeblood of our sector, in virtually every case, have not had to have experience of mobile apps, mobile devices and cutting edge technology in order to do their jobs. And it may be that for many of them, they still won't. But for many others, being able to actually wield a mobile device like a weapon, basically, and um, essentially do it in such a way that the data that's been collected through that device is capable of them being centralised and then spat out to illustrate trends predictive analytics and the like for the benefit of the board and senior management, that's increasingly going to be important in terms of that business efficiency piece and just doing your job really well. Would I be right in saying that, Tom? Yeah, look, I think that that's right, David. I'm just thinking about other areas that I've worked in, say particularly the the health sector. Sure. The integration of technology into mm. the into the workplace, so people are using smart systems that give them advice about how to handle situations, but importantly, process real time data, so you actually know what's happening. Mm. So that's really starting to revolutionise home care, for instance, so that people who are 
standing back from the the actual workplace, but uh, have some supervisory or uh, um, or clinical in this instance uh, responsibility can see what's happening and can guide it and to shape mm. it. Mm. So I'm sure that's going to happen in the disability sector as well as home care becomes more and more important in uh, uh, the provision of those services as has in aged care and in in health care. So, Tom, when aged care providers have been going down that path where they're moving to providing supports increasingly in the home and in community rather than in centre-based environments, is that, in your view, a function of their need to achieve business efficiencies or are they merely responding to the demands of the consumer that they don't want to actually access these types of supports in a centre-based environment away from their families, away from their communities? David, I think what it is is the uh, care system has been running to catch up with consumer preferences. So we started 20, 30 years ago creating uh, care packages for people in aged care. That was very controlled. It was uh, via the allocation of packages. Now that's moved to a point where, similar to the NDIS, resources are accessed via a portal on an individual basis, so not via the organisation, the organisation allocated the package, but the person has has access to it. And so it's very similar to the NDIS in, in that way. And what that's led to is uh, uh, just a quickening of the pace of it's, what's been going on for a long time, which is a movement towards home-based care rather than uh, uh, res- residential care. So we can predict in the disability sector something similar is going to happen. The mm. more consumers have control over their their own resources, the more they'll start to assert that control and they'll say what they want and organisations need to be focused on how they deliver what people want rather than how they run their programs and get people to fit into their programs. And that's that's the fundamental sort of philosophical change that needs to take place. You ask about business models that I'm seeing in the disability sector, the ones that I would say are most successful are ones that have really owned this idea that the consumer is at the heart of the process and will determine that the care and they're building their service infrastructure around that. example I give, one of the most successful uh, organisations I've worked with is in the, the desk employment area. Now, that's been commercialised for mm-hmm. a number of years now. Mm-hmm. An organisation that I've done quite a bit of work with in the Albury-Wodonga area has outperformed its commercial competitors on all the metrics, and it's done that without losing sight of its mission and its founders' goals around creating real employment opportunities for people with disabilities. So the commercial sector organisations can't compete, or haven't competed anyway. And they've, they've got very sharp business practices that support that vision. So you've got to do the business work, you've got to do the commercial work, but you've got to do it in the context of what the care system's trying to achieve. And the successful organisations, I think, are going to be the ones that are very clear about that vision and they build business systems around to support it uh, rather than be in conflict with it. So that's that's actually quite inspiring, if you don't mind my saying, Tom, because what you seem to be saying to me in so many words is that in many respects, 
a path towards achieving really great business efficiency is by doing what the NDIS expects of providers anyway, which is to put the client at, or the consumer at the centre of their supports. 100%. And, 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 and to be aware of what the individual needs on a reasonable and necessary basis, of course, but to be aware of what the individual needs and to structure your business models around those needs. Mm. Absolutely. And you'd agree with that, Clover? Yeah, definitely. And I think any um, any organisation that we've worked with um, and provided some intensive support through Sector Support Consultancy, when you ask about their business model, they sort of look at you quizzically and go, well, we have an implementation plan or we have our strategic plan, they sort of haven't considered a business model because they feel that they've got a current business model and they've been working off that for 50 years. So now it's a time of, well, re-looking at that business to look at your constitution, your mission, your vision and who your customer base is and what do they continue to, what are their drivers? So therefore they'll be your drivers as well. I think a lot of providers that we definitely support are working their business model. They think their implementation plan is their business model to a certain extent. And I think you've just given us our tagline for this podcast, actually, Clover. Their drivers are your drivers. Yeah. In terms of achieving business efficiencies, their drivers are your drivers, perhaps. Yeah, the consumer-driven market business okay. model. Yeah. All right. So, Tom, what are the key areas that providers should continue to keep keep monitoring in terms of understanding whether or not they're operating to their optimal efficiency as a business? Look, I'd identify three areas that would be uppermost in my mind, David. We talked a bit about understanding cost drivers. So you've got to actually understand your business. And that means, as we said, do your homework, collect accurate data so you can draw conclusions from it. But it's not just getting the data right. It's also the sense-making, actually standing back from it and making sense of it. Mm-hmm. The second point I make is the one we've just been talking about is consumer engagement. Know what your consumers want and be able to respond to it and be prepared to respond to it and build your business around that. And the third point that I'd make is, uh, is about workforce utilisation. Mm. It's a major cost driver. Getting the workforce right is going to be an absolute key to the success of your business. So, Clover, I can hear you making make, mm. making positive affirmation noises of what Tom's saying, but I'm going to actually ask you to expand upon those. When you're walking into an organisation, yep. how do you know, what, what criteria are you adopting to understand whether or not the organisation understands their business? Oh, gosh. Because when you need to understand your business, that's a broad phrase, as I'm sure we'd all acknowledge, but what criteria are we looking at to understand if an organisation understands its business? Is it, for example, that um, the CFO is able to actually enunciate in words of one syllable what their liquidity ratio is? Is it, for example, that they understand that they may have assets on the books which basically have been sitting there forever and doing nothing um, and maybe they need to be doing something with that? Is it income versus expenditure and just understanding ratios in that space? What are we talking about? It's often said that um, the three pillars of business efficiency are to be found in a great culture, really good finances and a really positive workforce. But saying that and knowing what it looks like is two different things in my view. Mm. How do you assess or how should organisations assess whether or not they're ticking the boxes in all three of those areas? Okay, great question. And I guess um, my experience is looking from an outsider's perspective in what some organisations are doing and how they're monitoring all of that. We mentioned before about liquidity and surplus. So I guess in the finance area that a a good organisation will know what they've got in the bank, what their balance sheet looks like and to inform 
how stable they will be in an unstable transactional environment. In complementing all of that is all of the systems and everything to input, forecast and project as best as possible. That, that information, that data there is also informed by trends and what they're seeing in other service systems as well and fed through to their board and management to make strategic decisions in how they implement new, new or existing service provision that, again, informs what the workforce looks like. If there needs to be a new workforce attracted or a the current workforce to be retained and retrained or just empowered to continue along the path that they have, which is a very difficult environment. I think all over Victoria is a huge concern about attracting a new workforce due to the skill that's required specifically now around working with individuals of um, varying degrees with varying needs, as well as the new infrastructure by way of reporting and technology and what have you that we've been discussing, and competition from other agencies also taking up some of those new recruits that could be attracted into your organisation. But overarching in all of that, a lot of that won't succeed by way of your your finances, your surplus won't be there if you have a poor culture, if you have an organisation that is too leadership heavy or too directive and is not a whole in a community setting that isn't led by the consumers and the frontline who are delivering quality services to empower and uphold the mission and vision and be proud of that. Um, And it's very hard in a um, change-filled environment because I think all organisations are still in a state of either denial or grievance um, in that change management process, they're in denial still that they know that NDIS is here to stay, but they're in denial that the system won't continue to change and impact them. The prices won't become more viable for them. They're in a state of, well, this is not working for us, but it's still that it's not working for us as an organisation rather than is it working for the consumer. So they're in that state of change, which trickles down into the whole organisation, which can breed a very, not a negative culture, but a, a fearful culture, a fearful of, oh, is this organisation here to stay? Is this where we're going to be in the future? Is my job stable? Why would I learn to use all of this technology if I don't know if I've got a job next week? So it's all about the overarching culture will impact all of your finances and your workforce and and therefore any business model you put into play. Sometimes it takes you a while to understand when it is and and what are the factors that are going towards it. But organisations, when you walk in, there's a lack of sense of purpose. Staff are disengaged. They can't tell you in any detailed way about where they stand financially and, uh, and, and what their business drivers are. And that's all too common, I'd, mm. I'd, have, I'd have to say. So I suppose the, one of the positive things to reverse that, it's, it's really clear sense of purpose engagement of staff really from top to bottom with mm. a sense of, sense of purpose, people feel feeling that they have the skills to do the job and they are supported to, uh, to do the job and in particular they have a, a well-developed client-centred approach. Mm. That is what's driving this is a, uh, a strong sense of 
the individual needs and expectations and aspirations of the consumer. Just on that culture point, and I meet with a lot of chief executives in the sector, obviously, given my role, and I'm increasingly of the view that where the leadership of the organisation is exuding a positivity in their approach to these issues, these very challenging issues, this period of disruptive change, that that invariably infects the culture of the organisation, that where the CEO is basically out there saying, look, there are challenges, but this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to do next and this is how we're going to get there and let me paint you the vision, the likelihood is that organisation will, on the balance sheet, be doing better than an organisation where everybody's walking around feeling very dark and gloomy about the whole thing. Yeah, look, I think that that's right, David. In times of rapid change, turbulent environments, as we've described, leadership is critically important. That's not to say that leadership has to be all of a sort. People have different approaches to how they do it, but the CEO has got to actually provide direction and bring the organisation with them if if the organisation is going to prosper. And I just wanted to add to that, I think some of the culture is not also, not only an internal thing, it can be reputational as well. So if you've got an organisation who feels that they have a positive culture, and maybe they do, but they're doing something, um, I don't know what they're doing, whether it's negative or not, but if there is a competitor who is against their culture or doesn't think their culture is right or fits their model, then that can also impact internally because of what you hear on the street. And I think we we need to acknowledge that a lot of our workforce works for multiple organisations so that they can just put food on the table and they're working different shifts in different organisations so they're hearing different things. So you need to look at your culture and reputation that filters out further as well. So you need to be aware of how your culture emanates across the sector. I think that's a really important point, actually, and one which I hadn't really contemplated before, and that is, of course, that we know that 80% of the workforce is is essentially not working in full-time hours with any one provider, and therefore, by definition, much of the workforce, insofar as it's wanting to work for full-time hours, is working across several providers. And it's fair to say, and all all organisations would need to be aware of this, that their workforce has the opportunity to compare and contrast in terms of how efficient the organisation is, what its culture's like, what its finances are like, and the likelihood of it being around in five or ten years' time. Definitely. Our next guest is Ross Coverdale, the Chief Executive Officer at Araluan one of our disability service providers and NDS members based in the northeast Melbourne area of Victoria. We're talking with Ross today about the business efficiencies implemented by Araluan to achieve great outcomes for their clients, people with disability and NDIS participants. Ross has led the development of Chances Cafe, which is a collaboration with Melbourne Polytechnic. This strategic partnership between Araluan and Melbourne Polytechnic enabled access to capacity building, including employment programs, and is a bespoke training environment with a registered training organisation, meaning that Araluan is able to place funds elsewhere as it does not need to invest in the cafe premises and kit, etc., which is a very interesting concept. So, Ross, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Great to have you here today. How has your organisation increased its business efficiency without compromising on delivering quality services or indeed while continuing to grow and build quality services? Sure. So I guess I'd say that um, 
business efficiency is about quality services. So we exist for a very simple reason. So people who live with disabilities have great lives. That's our business. What happens behind the scenes is supporting that. So for us, our goal is about creating valued roles. So for us, business efficiency is looking at everyone's individual giftedness. What can they do? Everyone has gifts and talents that they want to share and express. And in terms of being efficient, if we're proactive, creating new roles, working through people's fields of fascination, what they'd like to do, that leads us to Melbourne Polytechnic and a variety of other centres um, at locations to deliver our, our support. Was it that overarching philosophy and approach which um, informed how you spent your organisation's funds? Where have you actually been realising efficiencies in the context of that cap price that have enabled you to continue to support the staff as you have? And how do you engage with your internal teams to assess and improve business viability under the NDIS? So we don't see that finance is the responsibility only of the accountant. What I'd say about the staff at Araluan over this last two years since we cut over to the NDIS, but geared up for three or four years, what we realised is that people's skill set and passion was to support people to have great lives. Big hearts. So we didn't feel the right approach was to entrust everything to the accountant who worked three days a week. So we all went on courses, a lot of them run by your organisation, which were greatly valued. Pleased to hear it. And we also uh, believe that some of the training we went to, not just from NDS, but broader as we try to increase our financial capacity, really showed us that people didn't understand our industry. And we don't believe that anyone's been mischievous, but it's clear that the disability industry is complex and those within it know most about it, including when it comes to finance. So we did a very uncomplicated and potentially boring thing and it evolved over a conversation over the water cooler, which was, I've been off to a seminar today and I heard this. And someone said, well, I was at one last week and I heard the opposite. Let's go and talk to someone else. No, no, no. I thought it was that. So we said, okay, well, let's go into a room and we'll get a a blank sheet of paper and we'll wake Ross up and he can come in too. And we started to write down what we thought was going to happen. And it was clear there was lots of conflicting information and we called it very grandly the business plan and it wasn't. It was the dot points. I thought we might've got 15 dot points. When it got onto its 22nd page and we'd been meeting weekly for six months, we then decided to meet less frequently, reduce it, and we still run with this business plan. And the intelligence we've been able to garner from eight or nine people who have all increased their financial acumen has been phenomenal. And we we stick with that plan and it's positioned us ahead of the game in many areas. So as an example, in terms of business efficiency, We want to be, that's not language we'd use all the time, but when I talk to our customers, which is maybe you'd call them ageing carers with adult children who have intellectual disabilities, especially autism, and many of those adults live at home. And the parents that might be 60, 70 or 80 say this, what's going to happen to my kid when I die? Mm. And, And many people would say, well, I don't know, or there's a group home or, you know, go on the waiting list that could be 25 years. Well, that's inefficient. So for us, that's our, that's our mission. That's, that's business efficiency. So we've listened to that over the years. And prior to the NDS, in the eight years prior, we were able to move seven people out of the family home. 
and it's hard work. Right. So for you, business efficiency, at least in part, is informed by the question you've been asked by your customers as to what's going to happen down the track. And so you're working towards being able to answer that question in a very positive and constructive way. Well, that's what they want. That's yep. what, but through the NDIS, in this last two years, we've now moved another 15 people out of the family home and we're case managing 55 people in the next two years to move out of the family home. So that's clearly business efficiency. Now, how we run the finances behind the scene is supporting what I would call the mission. And, and But we've, we've been far more efficient and effective through positioning ourselves with the NDS. They say, my kid's good at this. My kid can do that. If you want to keep him happy, if you want to gauge with him, then it's Star Wars or it's pinball or it's the movie or the whatever. So we said, well, let's start from there. But for us, we interpret that as valued roles. So this is where Chances Cafe comes in. Most people want to contribute. They want to express their gifts and talents. And that's the the core of asset-based community development. So that's what we do. So the Chances Cafe, we're running three. We'll probably start another two up. And they're in different locations. People call them a social enterprise. They're not a social enterprise. We don't seek to make money. Business efficiency for us is not making profit on the back of the labour of people with disabilities. It's about creating valued roles so that when someone asks the participant what what they do, they say, I'm a barista or mm. I'm an artist and we've just sold our, um, we've just exceeded $100,000 of sales through our art program. So it's that approach that leads us into cafes and other things. So for us, a good cafe, an efficient, in terms of business efficiency, is low volume. When we've worked with the Level Crossing Authority at the Rosanna Station, they want us to run the cafe on platform. It's the worst possible option. We'd make the most money, but we would... Um, our guys do not work at speed. So we're in a, um, a Christian bookshop, but in most churches, you know, they're not the busiest places. And, a Christ- and, and those Christians that go, they're not all buying books. So for our guys, once they complete their training, they go to the Christian bookshop where volume's low. But parents go and they take their, their friends and neighbours and they say, that's my son and that's my daughter who's working there in a valued role. From there, we put them into either the at the Epping Community Services Hub where there's 130 social workers who each buy two coffees a day, but they're sympathetic to our guys and they love the cheek and the banter that our guys would share. And they don't mind waiting five minutes for a coffee. In fact, they'd rather wait 10 because they're on work time and, you know, and they want a break. So we're also at Mill Park Library. And as mums walk in to the library for playtime, they order their coffees with our guys and the coffees can take half an hour to come out because they're there reading books with their kids and it creates valued roles. The fourth cafe we started up uh, most recently is at Melbourne Polytechnic at Greensboro and we are the only cafe on campus. Uh, so it's much more high volume and it's a higher risk for us and we have up to 13 people running in the cafe. So it's it's a real challenge for us because this is now getting more high volume, but the more skilled and the more uh, proficient and, and quicker people are working in that cafe. Again, it's not about money. It's about valued roles. What we're hearing from these people, the, the participants, is they now want to move on to full employment and open employment. So we've been, we're working with the basketball stadium across the road. It's a very busy place. And we're in negotiations to run the cafe for them. In the daytime, when there's low numbers of people going through, mothers with kids who would buy a coffee maybe, 
we can be running at the cafe there, but at night we'll be employing on open, full wages, open employment people in a very busy basketball centre, and we're we're working on that. So the ultimate goal for business efficiency is to allow people to follow their aspirations, move into full employment, but through valued roles. If people don't go to full employment, it's still a valued role. It's still efficient. So Ross, that all sounds fantastic. Mm. And, well, well it, there's steps forward, David, and there's steps back. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, so on, on the path towards eventually supporting <laughs> yeah. everybody to achieve the outcomes they want to achieve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a straight line. <laughs> no, no, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be either. But it's also something which Errol Lewin hasn't done by itself, that there are others, other organisations who you've had to partner with in order to bring this vision to life. So I wonder if you would mind just talking a bit about the strategic partnerships sure. you've, you've entered into yep. to achieve these ends in the context of being as efficient as you can be as an organisation, as a business. Well, I think the first thing is there's internal stakeholders and external. Our board is amazing. So our board has led us from this place and created an environment of trust and respect. It's taken years for us to get to where we're going now, and the board's been very stable. People at that level have have been incredibly visionary and enabling. I'll talk through the Melbourne Polytechnic Partnership, which we're very, very proud of. Melbourne Polytechnic are a TAFE provider. We um, don't have endless amounts of capital to spend. We have some capital. We're not in a position to be buying day centres or sites. So... We went to talk to Melbourne Polytechnic. We know that within Melbourne Polytechnic, in some of their courses, 30% of participants have disabilities. We know that they run training for staff in Certificate 3 and 4 in disability and related fields. So the partnership we have set up, and it's a terrific partnership, and it's a close relationship with the CEO, a number of executives, and now the chair of Melbourne Polytechnic is on our board as well. We've got two partnership managers we work with very closely. So we do all the student placements for Melbourne Polytechnic on the disability courses. This means when they do 120 hours of placements, they do them at Araluen. It's the longest job interview you can ever have. So we recruit their best staff. Our staff that are unqualified and and come to us and say, I'd like to work in disability, we're so fantastic. Go to Melbourne Polytechnic and do your course. Come do your placement with us. We're in discussions about Eden Park where there's 35 horses. There's a Yan Yin campus that's 1,600 hectares. And on there, it's an agricultural site. So we're planning to have three hectares there and do paddock to plate for our cafes where guys will go in, do certificate one and two in horticulture, working alongside people without disabilities and our guys with disabilities, it's its all very, very exciting for us. So that that's really the partnership. We have the cafe at this stage rent-free. That might not always be the case. So we can then put more money into supporting our staff, uh, more staff support into our guys so that they're successful. We don't seek to make any profit from these cafes. For us, we want to create great lives. So, Russ, you've already observed that you've been CEO at Araluen for 12 years. 12th year. And I'm assuming that this, this activism in supporting people with disability to realise great outcomes hasn't occurred overnight or without a great deal of you know, change within the organisation. Yeah. As, a, as a leader of, in the organisation, what have you done to actually bring that culture change about? I think the culture change that's permeated through Araluen is a shared responsibility. You know, we're, we're, it's not just me. We've all been part of it. I, I guess... Um, and it starts, I think it starts from the board, who, who I find incredibly supportive. They said to me some years ago that they felt that I needed to um, raise my eyes and, and go and look at some different business models because we've always cared lots about people and we've always been very passionate. And I, and I guess by even spending time defining what Araluan is, we used to talk about, oh, you know, we're close relationship with families and, you know, 
people like that. But we went away and actually thought about, a, you know, a marketing strategy. Marketing and brand isn't something we ever had. We had it. We just didn't call it that. So we've been able to define what we are. We didn't aim to be this. We just gave the gave voice to what we were. So the three words that we use to describe Araluan is passion, people-centred, and integrity. And so we part of the culture is employing people who are passionate. If people don't really care, then we really don't care about them. So we don't, as staff, we don't employ them. And if sta- existing staff aren't passionate, well, there's a door and they can leave it. If they lack integrity, we don't want it, we're not interested in them. And if they don't have a people focus, they're not going to get on. So we tell everybody that. We, in everything we do, you can learn skills, but those qualities, they're, they're significant. And I would say in our staff, which I think our staff team are incredible, that's the hallmark. I can say safely that you can have too many people with passion in a room. It's And we, we have those moments. But I think actively saying that we aspire to have people with passion, integrity and a people focus makes it easier. Most organisations mix up mission, strategy, and they overstretch and they don't know when to say no. And in terms of business efficiency, which is your question half an hour ago that I'll eventually get to, David, (laughs) is that if you want to be efficient, then do what the main thing is bloody well. Or the opposite of exhaustive mediocrity is sustained excellence. So then they said, to enable sustained excellence, you've got to say what you're prepared to be terrible at which was unusual, and stopping what you're not very good at. And that, that takes a level of uh, maturity that's got emotional intelligence from the board down. So an alternate mission statement might be stick to your knitting, but do it really well. Knit the best scarf you can. I think people should do less better than more average and worse. Let's, let's avoid exhaustive mediocrity and aim for some excellence. Sounds like a good point at which to finish, Ross, and thank you very much for those observations and those insights as the Chief Executive at Araluan, and all the best. Thank you. So, we've heard from um, Ross Coverdale from Araluan, um, Clover and Tom. What reflections would you offer in terms of what Ross had to say about how his organisation was achieving business efficiencies and what messages we might take out of that for the wider sector? Well, Ross was pretty impressive, wasn't he, really? Uh, I mean, I, I, I think that level of enthusiasm and commitment came through and that's really uh, uh, critical and important. The uh, two things that came through for me from Ross's discussion was... Uh, Firstly, the importance of strategy, having thought through clarity about what it is that you want to uh, achieve and something we were talking about is actually knowing your business, making informed judgments about where you need to go and having a business strategy that supports that. But the second thing which I don't think we did talk enough about was the notion of partnership. And there can be a tendency within the NDIS to to fragment and to partialise things because of it's an individual contract to provide a service to an individual client rather than uh, an organisation being funded as they were in the past to provide for a group or for, for an area. So I think it's really important that organisations not fall into the trap of becoming isolated and thinking it's them running their business. They're running their business in the context of a community, of a service system, and they need to find partners. So you can be both competitive and very good about what you do, 
but it doesn't mean that all the time you need to be in conflict or uh, um, working uh, against the interests of others. Okay, Clover, any observations from you about what Ross had to say? Well, um, I wrote down a couple of things that he said as quotes that I might use in some presentations that I do moving forward, (laughs) but just sort of focusing on the um, partnerships and collaboration, I was witness to in the northern east metropolitan area, the first official rollout area of um, NDIS in Victoria, watching organisations sit that had long-term relationships sit apart from one another and say, no, I'll, I'll hold on to my own IP, I won't share my information with you because we're now moving into a competitive market. Then six months into the track where they sort of were parting ways and not speaking to each other, six months down the track I noticed them all come back together again because I think they realise that partnerships, collaborations work so much better under the scheme and they, they started to pick up that model of do less better exactly what Ross said. Do what you do well and you don't have to be everything to everyone because you can partner and another organisation can do part of and you can do part of and then therefore you create those efficiencies because you're not trying to just capture everything and muddle through it. Most definitely. I think we'd all agree that one of the things the not-for-profit sector, you know, the broader not-for-profit sector has done very well over the years is to actually nurture and grow those collaborative partnerships yep. for, the, for the greater good of its client group. Um, and it would be a shame, to say the least, if in fact that collaborative approach to delivering great services was to disappear merely because the scheme assumes an individualised approach to support. Well, I most definitely saw um, or heard David Ross making a few statements of our board is amazing, which filtered through to a shared responsibility culture within the organisation. So I think those two statements are crucial, as well as find money for what's important. Yeah, I must say it was an extraordinarily positive conversation that we had with Ross there, that's for sure. So, look, thanks to Tom, Clover and, of course, Ross Coverdale from Araluen for their insights today. If you're a Victorian disability service provider and you wish to engage a sector support consultant through National Disability Services to facilitate organisational efficiency in your organisation, head to nds.org.au forward slash SDP. Or you can find out more about NDS Consulting by visiting nds.org.au forward slash resources forward slash NDS hyphen consulting. Further details about these service offerings will also be available in our show notes. If you've got questions about the NDIS or Disability Employment Matters, you can now visit our new NDS Help Desk at nds.org.au forward slash Help Desk. The NDS Help Desk is free for Victorian and Queensland service providers with thanks to their state governments and for NDS members across Australia. Head to nds.org.au forward slash helpdesk for more information and to register. We'll look forward to you joining us again for the NDS Sector Development Podcast. NDS has produced a range of resources to assist Victorian service providers navigating NDIS operations for their business. Head to nds.org.au forward slash sdp to visit our NDIS Sector Development Project website where you can access valuable information and resources in our NDIS resource library, find podcast show notes, access our free online 24-7 NDIS help desk, subscribe to our monthly e-newsletter and 
find information and registration links for our NDIS readiness and implementation workshops, which we host right around Victoria in regions currently undergoing NDIS transformation. That's nds.org.au forward slash SDP. The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services, copyright 2018. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package. 